something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is the second part of a two-parter on Dean Muhammad, who was born in Patna in northeastern India in 1759 and was a camp follower and then a soldier in the British East India Company's Bengal Army. Where we left off in this whole story, Captain Godfrey Evan Baker, who was basically Muhammad's patron, had been accused of extortion and had resigned from the military, And then Muhammad followed his example, and together the two men sailed to Cork aboard the Danish vessel Christiansborg in January of 1784. Dean Muhammad was by far not the only Indian person who went to what's now UK during the late 18th century. But this was something authorities were actively trying to discourage. Officers often wanted to bring an Indian servant with them on their voyage when returning home from India, but officials in London were worried that this could create a community of impoverished Indian immigrants in major port cities. So the East India Company was required to provide return passage for Indian servants, and white officers were required to pay a bond of 50 pounds to ensure that their servant would return to India. Baker and Muhammad's return aboard a Danish ship raises some questions about whether this happened in Muhammad's case. The British East India Company had informed the Danish East India Company of this requirement, and in theory, the Danish company collected this bond when officers from Britain or Ireland returned on one of their ships. It is clear, though, They did not actually feel obligated to do this. It could be kind of lax whether it was enforced. Baker and Muhammad also boarded this ship outside of Kolkata proper, apparently because the Christiansborg was also carrying some kind of secret cargo. So it was loaded outside the city. 
a lot of cloak and dagger stuff going on with this ship. <laughs> Seems like maybe there was a smuggling situation. Not sure. Yeah. Uh, the Christiansborg arrived in Cork in late 1784, when Muhammad was about 25 and Baker was about 33. Baker was from a Protestant Anglo-Irish family that is of English descent, but born in Ireland, part of a class that's known as the Protestant Ascendancy. He seems to have quickly found a place for himself within Cork's more elite Protestant society, marrying the daughter of a wealthy baron. This means that Muhammad was basically moving from one colonized place to another, moving from India, which was in the process of being colonized through the efforts of the British East India Company, to Ireland, in which a Protestant English ruling elite was governing a predominantly Catholic Irish population. Although he was not the only Indian person living in Cork, he was also something of an outsider there, even within the that sort of Indian immigrant community. Cork was a port city, so most of its Indian population were sailors or servants who had been working on ships. Others were the wives or girlfriends of white sailors or soldiers who had brought them to Cork from India. But Muhammad had been an officer in the Bengal army and had reached the second highest rank that it was possible for an Indian to attain. He was also closely connected to a white officer, albeit one whose record was maybe a little spotty. But Muhammad was seen as having a higher social rank than, say, a soldier looking for work on a departing ship. But he was also lower in rank than Indian dignitaries and officials who arrived from Southeast Asia for business or personal or educational reasons. He also wasn't really seen as equal to the Anglo-Irish community that he was connected to through this relationship with Baker. Muhammad seems to have been regarded as something of a curiosity in Cork, not really part of the Anglo-Irish society that Baker was part of, but not entirely outside of it either. Muhammad would have already spoken English through his time in the Bengal army. That was one of many contexts in which an Indian person might learn English in the 18th century. But it's clear from his writing and the literary references in that writing that he made a serious study of the language and of material written in it. He, again, seems to have worked in Baker's household as a valet or a butler, a higher position than a regular servant, but not Baker's equal. Godfrey Evan Baker died in 1786, and that same year, Dean Muhammad eloped with a young woman named Jane Daly, who was described as a student and a member of the Protestant gentry. We are not sure exactly how old she was. Her gravestone and some obituaries give a birth year of 1780. That does not line up with a marriage six years later. She was definitely not a young child when they got married. It does seem like she was young, though, possibly in her, like, mid to late teens. The couple also paid a bond to the Anglican officiant who conducted the wedding ceremony rather than going through the usual process of posting the bands ahead of the ceremony and having them read from the pulpit. It is possible that they paid a bond rather than posting the bands because they were trying to avoid controversy around their respective ages or Muhammad's ethnicity. Marriages between white people and people of color weren't unheard of in Britain and Ireland at this point, especially in major cities that had established immigrant communities. But most of the time, these marriages happened between servants or working-class people, not with members of the gentry. 
It's also possible that this was something that the efficient demanded. This bond, when people paid it, protected the efficient in case it turned out that the marriage was actually illegal in some way, such as if a Protestant were marrying a Catholic, which was outlawed. So Muhammad was definitely not Catholic. He did convert to Anglicanism. He probably converted before this marriage took place, but it's possible that this efficient still kind of looked at him and regarded him as not Protestant. One last question mark about the marriage between Dean Muhammad and Jane Daly. It's possible, but not totally certain, that something happened to Jane and that he later remarried to someone else who was also named Jane. Or it is possible that there was just one Jane and that she and Muhammad were married for the rest of their lives. There doesn't seem to be clear documentation to clarify whether there was one Jane or two, but it is confusing in the historical record. Yeah, Uh, and I read some, you know, more modern write-ups that definitively said his first wife died and he remarried someone also named Jane and others that just proceed as though there is only one Jane without getting into it at all. In 1793, Muhammad started placing advertisements for his forthcoming book, looking for subscribers to help cover the cost of publication. This is a common way for people to get their books into print. He also seems to have visited a number of prominent people in person to ask them to subscribe. Ultimately, he got 320 subscribers. A lot of them were gentlemen, members of the nobility, other affluent and prominent people. They weren't all men. There were a lot of, like, uh, high-ranking women among the subscribers. It seems to have been very well-connected among the more elite people. 450 copies of his book, The Travels of Dean Muhammad, a native of Patna in Bengal, through several parts of India, while in the service of the Honorable the East India Company, written by himself in a series of letters to a friend, in two volumes was published on January 15, 1794. The book was dedicated to William A. Bailey, Esquire, colonel in the service of the Honorable the East India Company. This dedication may explain why the book describes one of Bailey's defeats as a victory. As we noted in Part 1, this was written specifically for an English-speaking audience, people from Britain or Ireland who might have reason to visit India. So epistolary travel narratives and epistolary novels were a really popular genre in 18th century Britain. And Muhammad wrote this as a series of 38 letters to a fictional friend, addressing these letters only as Dear Sir. And it's really obvious from his writing that he had studied other travel narratives as well as other English language literary styles and conventions. This was written so skillfully that he had some detractors who claimed it was impossible for an Indian to have written such an English work. Again, there were a lot of ways that people in India, like Indian people in India, were learning English (laughs) This is not actually unusual to speak English, but people were like, there's no way that an Indian wrote this. It sounds way too English. (laughs) He assumes that his reader is educated and knowledgeable and subtly reinforces the idea that he is educated and knowledgeable as well, including leaving Latin quotes in Latin untranslated with the implicit assumption that both he and his readers know what those quotes say. He also includes terms from multiple other languages, including Hindi, Persian, Bengali, and local dialects from different parts of India. 
At other points, he used terminology that would be accessible and understandable to his audience rather than local terms that would have been more accurate. For example, he describes a number of Muslim practices around birth and circumcision as baptism. No actual baptism was involved, but he was trying to make what he was describing more relatable and understandable to the people who would read it. Muhammad meant this also as an account of his own life in India, including his time with the Bengal army, and as a travel guide for people who might want to visit or work in India, whether this was in a military or a civilian role. So he included extensive descriptions of the Indian subcontinent's cities and landscapes, its plants and animals, including elephants, rhinoceroses, and camels, and its cultures and religions, primarily in terms of Muslims and Hindus. He also included a glossary, and he printed this work as two small volumes so that it would be more easily portable. We're going to talk about the book in more detail after we pause for a sponsor break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dean Muhammad's Travels of Dean Muhammad was not the first English-language book written by a traveler from somewhere outside of Europe was the first uh, one by an Indian person in English. We do know that. 
Uh, This is unique, though, in terms of Muhammad's role and his place in both Indian and Anglo-Irish society. This is a work about the peoples and the cultures of India written by an Indian for an English-speaking white audience. Overall, it is far more sympathetic to its Indian subjects than similar work by white writers generally was in the 18th century. Although, it does still describe tribal peoples who were living outside of the more mainstream Indian society as savages. This book could be kind of romanticized, but it was not really sensationalized in the way that most white writers' work on India was. At the same time, broadly speaking, it was supportive of the British East India Company's endeavors in India. Again, it was specifically written for people who were likely to see those endeavors as a good and necessary thing. But he could also be critical. Both of the company's more extreme efforts to control the Indian population and of the decline in the power of the Mughal Empire that the British had both taken advantage of and contributed to. So you can read this book as an attempt to give an English-speaking European audience a more accurate idea of what India and its peoples were like, or you can read it as complicit with British efforts to colonize and control India. Or both. Uh, As an example of what this book is like, he wrote this description of Benares, also called Varanasi, as an example of sort of the glories of India's past. Quote, There was once a very fine observatory here, and a few years ago, some European gentlemen led hither by the love of science and antiquity discovered a great many astronomical instruments of large size, admirably well contrived, though injured by the hand of time. It was supposed they might have been constructed some centuries ago under the direction of the great Akbar, the fond votary of science and the distinguished patron of the Brahmins who applied with unwearied assiduity to the study of astronomy. So uh, Akbar was the third Mughal emperor. I have had him on my list for an episode forever. Uh, I've... Maybe. May, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of what I have about him is written from a more... Uh, Muslim perspective and not as much detail about, like, how did the Hindus that he was ruling over feel about all of this? Muhammad described the decline of the Mughal Empire this way, quote, the history of the revolutions of his court is fraught with so much fiction that it would be impossible to reconcile it to reason or reflection. Yet if we believe the records and traditions of the natives, its sovereigns were the greatest and most arbitrary monarchs in the world. Their orders, though ever so extravagant, were submissively obeyed, and their mandates observed by the remotest nations. Their very names struck terror into the hearts of their enemies. But so rapid has been the decline of their power that the race of the great Tamerlane is now little respected since the days of Nizam al-Mulud. The royal tenure of the throne is grown so insecure that the Mughal has been, of late years, deposed at pleasure to make way for such of his servants as could gain over the people that great engine of power to their cause. His authority, which prevailed in former ages over most of the kings of earth, now reaches little farther than his seraglio, where he dreams away life, drowned in the enjoyment of dissolute pleasures. Muhammad also described India in a lot of passages in terms of like the India of the present day, as truly beautiful. 
As one example, quote, the country around Benares is considered as the paradise of India, remarkable for its lubrious air, fascinating landscapes, and innocence of its inhabitants, whose simple manners and had a happy influence on all who lived near them. While wasteful war spread her horrors over other parts of India, this blissful country often escaped her ravages, perhaps secured by its distance from the ocean, or more probably by the sacred character ascribed to the scene, which had through many ages been considered as the repository of the religion and learning of the Brahmins, and the prevailing idea of the simplicity of the native Hindus, a people unaccustomed to the sanguinary measures of what they term civilized nations. Several of the letters in the book are devoted to different aspects of culture and religion, with more detail in terms of Muslim beliefs and practices, since Muhammad didn't have as much familiarity with the practices of Hinduism or other religions. When English-language writing on India was full of descriptions of its people as savage, backward, and alien, Muhammad wrote this description of Muslims, quote, The Mohammedans are, in general, a very healthful people. Refraining from the use of strong liquors and accustomed to a temperate diet, they have but few diseases for which their own experience commonly finds some simple yet effectual remedy. When they are visited by sickness, they bear it with much composure of mind, partly through an expectation of removing their disorder by their own manner of treating it. But when they perceive their malady grows too violent to submit even to the utmost exertions of their skill, they send for a molna who comes to the bedside of the sick person and putting his hand over him, feels that part of his body most affected and repeats with a degree of fervency some pious prayers, by the efficacy of which it is supposed the patient will speedily recover. The Mahometans meet death with uncommon resignation and fortitude, considering it only as the means of enlarging them from a state of mortal captivity and opening to them a free and glorious passage to the mansions of bliss. Those ideas console them on the bed of sickness, and even amid the pangs of dissolution, the parting soul struggling to leave its earthly prison and panting for the joys of immortality changes at bright intervals the terrors of the grim monarch into the smiles of a cherub who invites it to a happier region. He also tried to dispel some misconceptions that he thought his readers probably had about Islam as a religion. For example, quote, the Mohammedans are strict adherents to the tenets of their religion, which does not by any means consist in that enthusiastic veneration for Muhammad so generally conceived. It considers much more as its primary object the unity of the supreme being under the name of Allah, Muhammad is only regarded in a secondary point of view as the missionary of that unity, merely for destroying the idol worship to which Arabia had continued so long under bondage, and so far from addressing him as a deity that in their orations they do not pray to him, but for him recommending him to the divine mercy. It is a mistaken, though generally received, opinion that pilgrimages were made to his tomb, which in a religious sense were only directed to what is called the Kahaba, or Holy House at Mecca, an idol temple dedicated by him to the unity of God. His tomb is at Medina, visited by the Mohammedans purely out of curiosity and reverence to his memory. As we mentioned before the break, this book also included a glossary. Here are some examples. Bang, an intoxicating juice of a vegetable. Bazaar, a market. Beetle, a leaf growing on a vine and chewed by all ranks of people. Brahmin, a priest. 
Dogas, custom house officers or collectors. Dooley, a woman's chair like a sedan. Hackeries, carts or coaches drawn by oxen. Paddy grounds, rice fields. Pagoda, an Indian temple. Raja, the highest title claimed by the Gentoo princes. He defined Gentoo as a native Indian in a state of idolatry. Sepoys, Indian foot soldiers hired and disciplined by Europeans. Zemindary, an officer who takes care of the rents arising from the public lands. I like how some of the words that needed to be defined in the 18th century are words that are just commonly used in English now, like bazaar and pagoda. Uh, There were also poems. Some of the poems weren't attributed to anyone. They were presumably written by him. Others were quotes from writers like John Milton. It's clear that Muhammad was influenced by European writing about India, especially John Henry Gross's Voyage to the East Indies, published in 1766, and Jemima Kindersley's Letters from the Islands of Tenerife, Brazil, the Cape of Good Hope, and the East Indies. That came out in 1777. In fact, according to Michael H. Fisher, who has written a number of works on Dean Muhammad, about 7% of this text comes from Gross's book, but rewritten in Muhammad's voice and sometimes reframed to create a more neutral or positive view of the people and places that are being described. For example, Gross included a passage on the practice of chewing beetle leaf, describing it as a vicious habit and saying people did it to fortify the stomach or preserve the teeth, but dismissing the idea that it could do either thing. A very similar passage is in Muhammad's book, but it doesn't dismiss the idea that chewing beetle could fortify the stomach or preserve the teeth, and it presents the chewing of beetle leaf as a luxury for great men, not as a vicious habit. So as we've talked about before on the show, attitudes about plagiarism were really different in the 18th century than they are today. At that time, people were sort of picking up and copying from one another all the time without a lot of furor over it. It's likely that Muhammad used some of this borrowing to kind of fill in gaps in his own knowledge. Since he was Muslim, he could not speak from experience about Hindu beliefs and practices. He also couldn't really talk in detail about the cultures and the practices of people who were living in areas really far away from where he had grown up. There's just, there's enormous uh, cultural diversity in the Indian subcontinent and he was talking about the other side of the region, like he might not actually know much detail. At some points, though, like this description of the chewing of beetle leaf, he borrows descriptions of things that he probably would have known about. We don't totally know why he chose to go with those passages and not not ones of his own. Beyond that, this book seems to line up really well with East India Company records on where Muhammad's units would have been during his 15 years connected to it. This is incredible, considering that that meant he was writing about things that had happened between 10 and 25 years before, and there's no evidence that he kept detailed notes during his time in the army. So he's kind of the exception that proves the rule of uh, uh, memory being pretty faulty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I don't, maybe there were notes, or maybe he did a lot of uh, research going through old newspaper. I don't know. Uh He's, he seems to have done a pretty good job, though, of, of, of keeping the timeline correct. Uh, we'll talk about his life after this book came out, after another quick sponsor break. 
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1796, Godfrey Evan Baker's younger brother, Captain William Massey Baker, bought an estate outside of Cork. William Baker had a daughter named Eleanor whose mother was Indian, and it's possible that Dean Muhammad set up a household somewhere on that estate. He definitely spent time there. On December 7th, 1799, an Indian visitor to Cork named Abu Talib Khan visited while traveling to London to reconnect with an old patron. He wrote an account of his travels, which was in Persian, and that included writing about this meeting with Dean Muhammad at this estate. In 1807, after a little more than 20 years in Cork, Dean Muhammad and his family moved to the fashionable neighborhood of Portman Square in London. At this point, he had at least one son, William, born in 1797. He and Jane went on to have several other children, Amelia in 1808, Henry in 1810, Dean in 1812, Rosanna in 1815, Horatio in 1816, Frederick in 1818, and Arthur Ackbar in 1819. 
Their living in Portman Square suggests that while they might not have been fully accepted into British society, they weren't entirely excluded from it either. As we said, this is a really fashionable neighborhood. They also must have been making a pretty comfortable living to be having a lodging there. Muhammad started working for a Scottish nobleman named Basil Cochrane, who had returned from India very wealthy, so wealthy that he repeatedly faced accusations of embezzlement. At this point, so-called exotic treatments from the East had become a fad in England, drawing inspiration from both Southeast Asia and Egypt. Both of these places were being occupied or colonized by England and France, and so people were kind of bringing things inspired from those places back to uh, Britain, Ireland, continental Europe. Cochrane tried to find a business niche that could capitalize on this fad, and he established a steam bath. Muhammad got a job there doing shampooing. This was not washing people's scalps and hair. It was a style of Indian therapeutic massage with the term shampooing coming from the word champi. In 1810, Muhammad established the Hindustani Coffee House in Portman Square. This was more of a restaurant than a coffee shop. He served meat and vegetable dishes with seasoned rice in what sounds like almost a British and Indian culinary fusion. The restaurant's decor was inspired by Indian fashion and art, or possibly by Asian art more broadly. An adjacent room had hookahs for smoking with tobacco blended with herbs from India. Yeah, the reason we say Asian art more broadly possibly is that, like, one observer wrote a description of it that included the word Chinese, and we don't really know if there was Chinese art or if that person just kind of lumped everything. Right, if they were trying to sound as though they knew about other cultures. (laughs) Uh, This was the first known Indian restaurant in England, and here is an advertisement that ran for it. Quote, Hindustani Coffee House, number 34 George Street, Portman Square, Muhammad, East Indian, informs the nobility and gentry he has fitted up the above house neatly and elegantly for the entertainment of Indian gentlemen where they may enjoy the hookah, the real chum tobacco, and Indian dishes in the highest perfection and allowed by the greatest epicures to be unequaled to any curries ever made in England with choice wines and every accommodation and now looks up to them for their future patronage and support and gratefully acknowledges himself indebted for their former favors and trusts it will merit the highest satisfaction when made known to the public. People seem to have liked the food at this restaurant, but Muhammad struggled to keep it afloat. It wasn't in a good location to have a dedicated regular clientele or to attract lots of attention from visitors and travelers. After about a year, he brought in a partner named John Spencer to try to salvage the operation, but This just did not work out, and in 1812, Muhammad filed for bankruptcy. He wasn't involved in the restaurant after this point, but it does seem like someone else took over the space and ran a restaurant with the same name, possibly for years afterward. Bankruptcy obviously was a huge financial loss for the Muhammad family. They moved into a boarding house. It's possible that Muhammad's eldest son took a job to try to help out. Muhammad also advertised his services as a valet or a butler and eventually wound up working at another steam bath. Eventually, the family moved to Brighton, which was growing into a popular resort town with a focus on sea bathing, bathing machines, and wellness spas. Muhammad again worked as a valet, then found a job at a bathhouse and started selling his own cosmetics. 
1814, he and Jane were both working as bathhouse keepers at the Indian medicated vapor bath, where Muhammad used Cochrane's steam bath designs but with more Indian-inspired elements. Jane learned to do shampooing as well, and she supervised the women's baths. Seawater was seen as having health benefits, and Muhammad drew in seawater, heated it into steam, and customers bathed in a contraption sort of like a steam room. In December of 1815, Muhammad opened a new business called Battery House Baths in a building that, as its name suggests, had been a battery for the British Board of Ordnance. (laughs) Apparently, though, all the cannon fire that went on there combined with ongoing erosion issues, kind of weakened the foundation that made it not a great idea to keep firing cannons around there anymore. Within three years, Muhammad was billing himself as a shampooing surgeon. He wasn't performing surgery like we would describe it today. People were using the word surgeon to mean more along the lines of doctor. So he was using steam baths and massage to treat all manner of ailments, And as his success grew, he opened another facility up the cliff from the battery that was known as the West Cliff Baths. In 1820, Muhammad printed a book that was basically a collection of customer testimonials for his wellness treatments. This was called Cases Cured by Sheikh Dean Muhammad, Shampooing Surgeon and Inventor of the Indian Medicated Vapor and Seawater Bath. Sheikh was the honorific chic, which he had begun using. He also started building Muhammad's Baths on King's Road in Brighton, along with business partner Thomas Brown. This bathhouse opened when Muhammad was 62, and he and his family lived next door. In 1822, Muhammad published another book, Shampooing, or Benefits Resulting from the Use of the Indian Medicated Vapor Bath as Introduced into this Country by S.D. Muhammad, Native of India, containing a brief but comprehensive view of the effects produced by the use of the warm bath in comparison with steam or vapor bathing. This built on that earlier booklet of testimonials outlining how he used shampooing and vapor baths to treat various ailments. The book started with, quote, Shampooing is a process which I feel it incumbent on me to acknowledge cannot be practiced by any person unaccustomed to it or who has not frequently witnessed and been instructed carefully in the operation. Several pretenders have, since my establishment has been formed, entered the held in opposition to me who profess to know the art, yet I am sure their ignorance must appear manifest to the world when it is known friction is applied instead of another and less violent action. In the vapor bathing, too, I have my imitators, but the public alone must decide on the merit of the copies by a comparison with the original. The herbs with which my baths are impregnated are brought expressly from India and undergo a certain process known only to myself before they are fit for use. He described using his methods to treat asthma, contractions, which were spasms, paralysis or palsy, as in what might follow a stroke, rheumatism, and sprains. Each description was followed by several customer testimonials for how people had recovered. He also gave a brief explanation that he said he did not think all ailments could be cured through his methods, but that He followed that with a a number of testimonials that were related to various other complaints. Uh, This included hoarseness, knee pains, a spinal complaint, a nervous disorder, abscesses, piles, that's hemorrhoids, general weakness, 
etc. It was a wide range of things covered in these additional testimonials. Listen, he's he's covering himself by saying not everything is going to be cured, <laughs> but I'd have cured an awful lot of stuff. Uh, and he also included several poems that were written in his honor, like this one from Mrs. Kent of Wimpole Street, London. Worn out by anguish and excess of pain, hope seemed delusive and assistance vain. Oppressed by sorrow, languid by disease, deprived of health, all pleasure ceased to please. The bath whose influence o'er the shattered frame, like the mild soothing of a parent came, bade her now hope who felt affliction's rod, and blessed with health, now breathes her thanks to God. To thee, Muhammad, let a grateful heart its warmest thanks and gratitude impart. By the great skill and unremitting care, one has been saved that might have perished here. Who, while she feels a pulse within her veins, will bless thy name if memory remains. There were several of these very flattering poems. (laughs) I love this whole thing, obviously. Uh, There were also newspaper clippings praising his bathhouse, a list of subscribers' names, and a brief account of his own biography. This presented him as 10 years older than he really was, with that 10 additional years spent working at Calcutta Hospital before joining the Bengal Army. This did not happen. It was made up. Uh, As with that copied and paraphrased parts of his travel book, though, this was also an incredibly common for people who were, uh, like, working in this sort of pseudo-medical wellness spa space to do, like, making up a medical biography for yourself. Yeah, cooking up credentials. Yeah, I'm not saying that's a great thing to do. I'm just saying he was not doing anything unusual given the time or the fact that he was working in wellness in Brighton. In 1825, Muhammad published a revised version of his book that was more in line with prevailing medical discourse around the ailments he was treating. He also received a warrant of appointment as royal shampooing surgeon from two consecutive monarchs, Kings George IV and William IV. Muhammad's bathhouses were incredibly popular. They were described as very fashionable and elegant, and he tried to open new branches in London and to fend off various competitors in the 1820s. But by the late 1830s, his popularity was really starting to wane. In the later years of his reign, King William IV kind of moved on to other resorts and other establishments, and a lot of clients just kind of followed where the king went. Although Muhammad extended numerous invitations to William's successor, Queen Victoria, she apparently never visited one of his baths. Muhammad's business in Brighton also suffered as it was disrupted by the construction of various other buildings and seawalls, and also other people just built bathhouses, and those were newer and more modern. In 1841, Muhammad's partner Thomas Brown died, and Muhammad's baths were auctioned off. Even though he seems to have made a very successful living from his business, Muhammad did not have the money to buy these bathhouses himself. He hoped the buyer would hire him uh, and then keep him on for running the baths, but instead, the space was leased to one of his competitors. Muhammad tried to keep offering treatments in his home. During the last years of his life, Indians in England were being seen less as a curiosity and more as an annoyance and as racially inferior to white Britons. Like, this wasn't new. This had been the case before, especially among the more, like, less affluent classes of people. But it was just becoming more obvious and more pronounced. Muhammad and his family seemed to have fallen from public sight in Brighton. 
Jane died of uterine cancer on December 26, 1850, and then Dean Muhammad died two months later on February 24, 1851, at the age of 91. They were both buried at St. Nicholas's Parish Church in Brighton. Uh, Muhammad had been really well-known while living in Cork and then in London, and he had been famous during the heyday of his Brighton baths, but by the time he died, he and his businesses had largely been forgotten. On September 29, 2005, a historical marker was unveiled in London at the site of the Hindustani Coffee House. And a Google Doodle on January 15, 2019, marked the 225th anniversary of the publication of The Travels of Dean Muhammad. As a final note, uh, Dean and Jane Muhammad obviously had a very large family. One of their grandchildren has actually come up on the show before not that long ago. Frederick Henry Horatio Akbar Muhammad lived from 1849 to 1884 and worked at Guy's Hospital in London, where he made a number of important discoveries related to blood pressure, hypertension, and kidney disease. So, of course, we talked about him a bit in our hypertension episode. Sadly, he died of typhoid at the age of only 35. Do you have a little listener mail to cap off Dean Muhammad's story? I do. It's really quick. A a quick point from Arturo, who wrote after our episode on Licoritia of Winchester. And Arturo wrote, Dear Tracy and Holly, you rightly point out that not all people engaged in money lending were Jews, and not all Jews were engaged in money lending. But I wanted to point out another factor that pushed medieval Jews to banking, finance, and trade. Jews in many countries were forbidden from owning land, so they could not be farmers or landlords. They were not allowed to join guilds, so many professional trades were foreclosed to them. There were only so many ways to make a living in medieval Europe. Regards, Arturo. Thank you for this note, Arturo. I feel like we had made like similar points from a different direction. We had talked about people being allowed to live only in England, uh, in, in London, and then other cities, um, and and there being restrictions on what professions they could pursue, but we hadn't specifically talked about landowning uh, or or the fact that having to be a member of a guild um, cut people off from so many different professions. Um, I think, if I am remembering correctly from my research, uh, toward the end of when there was a Jewish community in England during the medieval period, um, there were some people who were allowed to own land, but don't quote me on that. I could be misremembering or I could have blurred some things together in what I was reading. So thank you so much, Arturo, for giving, giving us a chance to make that distinction. Uh, if you would like, you can send us an email. We're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Uh, you can look at our Facebook, our, our uh, Instagram, our X that used to be Twitter. We're at Missed in History at all those places. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.